You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, your fortnightly podcast on all things defence and strategy. We're back after a short break with a huge episode breaking down the conflict in Syria and a special interview with Rod Lyon on nuclear strategy in a changing world. If you're a regular listener, you may have noticed a sharp decline in the editing quality for our last episode. Our wonderful editor Jerry was on a well-deserved holiday and I took it upon myself to subject you all to my inferior mixing skills. But never fear, we took a few weeks off and Jerry is back along with his superior standards. Later on in the show, you'll hear from our cyber team and their thoughts on the narrative wars surrounding the Syrian conflict. But first up, our two grumpy strategists, Michael and Marcus, discussed the US withdrawal from the region. They debated Putin's role and grappled with the complex issue of returning foreign fighters. Okay, so Michael, today we're talking about Syria. I know you've uh, had some thoughts about Syria. You've been talking widely with people, including in Germany, about Syria. Uh, You're probably going to be publishing some material for The Strategist on Syria. Overall, it looks like we've gone from bad to worse, particularly in a situation of terrorism. It's hard to see how uh, what has occurred in the last couple of weeks making the global uh, terrorism situation any better. Is that your view? Uh, yes, it is. I, I think uh, a big outcome of this is Vladimir Putin is a kingmaker in the Middle East. And I don't know what other people think, but I'm not sure that's a comfortable position uh, for, for the world. Putin has shown he's extremely ruthless and efficient in the way he's supported the al-Assad uh, regime, um, but uh, the way Russian forces and militias have conducted themselves has been extremely brutal. And if you're thinking about it from a counter-terrorist point of view, That kind of brutality is the perfect way of creating further generations of grievance and violence. I think that's the biggest story in Iraq and Syria, uh, Mm. that anyone that thought Islamic State was out for the count and was now just going to be a a sort of policing um, and local security force problem uh, is wrong. The grounds for expecting Islamic State's resurgence in Syria and Iraq are very high, and we're unfortunately in uh, what former US CENTCOM General John Abizade said was the long war. Well, I, I think we are in a situation of endless wars, essentially, not just in terrorism, but the whole situation of the Middle East. One of the things you said about Putin being the kingmaker, I would take some issue with there. Uh, I think Putin is a key player, and obviously his intervention in Syria tipped the balance Uh, back in favour of the Syrian regime and Assad. But I don't think Putin can shape the Middle East the way he wants, the entire Middle East, or even large chunks of it, the way he wants, any more than the the US has been able to over the last 50 years. The US has put massive resources into the, uh, the Middle East and essentially, in my view, made things even worse. uh, So I don't think Putin is really going to be able to shape the Middle East the way he wants. I think we'll just see endlessly shifting coalitions of interest coming together temporarily and uh, falling apart again. So I'm sort of more inclined to see uh, long-term instability rather than a kind of Putin-inspired solution. But that, I think, 
leads us to the same conclusion, which is that conditions for terrorism will thrive and, and get worse. Mm. Maybe, maybe you're misunderstanding me. I don't think Putin is in control of the Middle East, but Putin and Russia uh, is now the a necessary power and necessary leader that Middle Eastern states must come to accommodations with. Uh, it's now not Washington, it is Moscow. Um, and Putin has done that with a very parsimonious expenditure of Russian lives and capability. So uh, I'm talking about the standing he's achieved and the need for any, any ruler of a Middle Eastern country, whether it's Iran, Syria, Turkey, Jordan, the UAE, Saudi Arabia or Israel, to need to come to an accommodation with Moscow. Yeah, well, it's pretty clear that Donald Trump doesn't want to play that role anymore. We've spoken a lot about the US needing to refocus on the Pacific. Inherent in that is probably an assumption that the US needs to draw down from the Middle East. Um, I think any drawdown from the Middle East would uh, not be without pain. There are a lot of potential losers if the US withdraws. But I think there's bad ways to do that and terrible ways to do that. And I think what we've seen from Trump recently is a terrible way to simply withdraw overnight and see where the pieces uh, fall. What is the role for the US there now? Well, I think the role for the US uh, is to think about how their interests get affected by the new balance of powers that US absence is starting to create. Because uh, I've talked about Vladimir Putin um, and the need for others to accommodate uh, with Moscow. But Putin's Russia doesn't have a whole lot of financial resources. He's got ruthless, sufficient military resources and he's an adept political strategist, uh, but he doesn't have a lot of cash. Uh, the other power with a lot of cash that has a good track record of working well with Russia is a country called China. Um, and so the implications for the Middle East from an American absence and a Russian security role is an opportunity for China. Let's think a little bit ahead around reconstruction of Syria, reinvestment in oil fields, uh, those kinds of things. So I think Washington needs to think hard about what they want as, as a longer term outcome. And so it's not all about terrorism, it's also about great power competition. I mean, my sense is, as we said before, about China in the Asia or the Indo-Pacific. No one particularly likes China, but they're willing to work with China out of that, you know, old, the old motivators of greed and fear. I, my feeling is that's um, the attitude in the Middle East towards Russia and China. So people will work with them if it's in their interest, but I can't really see sort of long-term alliances growing out of that. Well, I, I don't think the future or even the past of the Middle East has been deep alliances in the way that we might think about uh, the US-Australia alliance. They have been um, transactional accommodations and very much interest-based relationships. Um, so I think we'll see more of that. I, I don't think they have to be based on shared values and mm -hmm. uh, a large alignment of interests. It's more about sufficient alignment of interests uh, and accommodation. Mm. But I think, um, you know, people in various parts of Syria, for example, would turn on Russia as they already have in some areas when it suits them. 
Well, I think Putin doesn't want to own the problem. Mm. Uh, he wants to be uh, the power that everybody's got to talk to and he wants to be able to intervene when he thinks it's in his interest, as he did to support Assad. But I don't think he's going to want to own the problems in the Middle East. And so it's going to be a patchwork of nasty, difficult relationships. Uh, probably one of the most interesting things is what happens between Iran and Israel and how much of their fighting do they do in Syria. So, so what's, what should we do about the um, Australian foreign fighters who were being held in Syria, who's many, most of whom seem, still seem to be held, but their fate is kind of uncertain. It's not clear whether you know, they will be released or, or what will happen to them. The Australian government has essentially washed its hands of them, said it was their own fault and they're not going to risk any Australian lives, any service people going in and, and bringing them out. What's your view? What should we be doing about them? Well, I think it starts from a bit of a bigger perspective, uh, which is both Syria and Iraq are going to be places where there is continued and probably growing amounts of jihadist extremism and terrorism. Um, and with groups like AQ, uh, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State having a continuing intent to uh, encourage and conduct attacks in other countries, including Australia, Western Europe and the United States. So we're back to where we were uh, when there was a decision to build an international anti-Daesh, anti-Islamic State coalition. Uh, in fact, we've probably got as large a need to do that now as we had then. And that means that leaving Australian nationals and other foreign nationals in conditions in Syria and Iraq that are perfect for them to be radicalised and work with groups like Islamic State and Al-Qaeda to conduct attacks in the Middle East and uh, encourage attacks across the world, including in Australia, is a bad idea. But what would you do about it? Well, I would recognise the number of laws that Australia has put in place over the last 18 years that give extensive power uh, to control the lives of people involved in terrorism, including putting them in jail for being in places like Raqqa. Uh, I would also recognise we've got a highly developed state and society with a whole lot of uh, agencies, organisations and measures to deal with dangerous and damaged people in our own society uh, by putting the dangerous in jail and by supporting the damaged. And taking that responsibility is part of a bigger counter-terrorism narrative. Remember, uh, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State tell the world that the West is anti-Muslim and that we do repressive, horrible things against Muslims around the world. Well, how we behave with our foreign nationals who joined the Islamic State Caliphate uh, can either make that right or make that wrong. So we need to think about the larger narrative and think about the fact that these resurgent terrorist groups in Syria and Iraq won't just be a problem for Syria and Iraq. They'll be a problem for all of us. And that means acting to deal with the problem of our own foreign nationals ourselves. Would you take back only those who want to return voluntarily or would you seek to extradite all of them? I'd seek to take every Australian foreign national 
who is currently in a prison, whether it's Iraq or Syria or Turkey, and every man, woman and child who is a supporter or un unwillingly brought along as part of the family back to Australia through extradition or through voluntary repatriation. And then I'd bring all force of Australian law uh, to bear against those who are a part of the terrorist groups and I would bring all the support of our advanced society to support the damaged who have been uh, a part of this. And how many individuals do you think that is? Well, this is, at the moment, we're all talking about it like it's a fixed stock of people. We're talking about um, maybe a dozen or so male foreign fighters uh, who are Australians and maybe 20 women and about 40 children. Um, but this is a continuing problem. More Australians will travel there over time. And the choices we make now will determine whether a whole lot more travel there because we're helping build a vibrant terrorist problem or less. And if we take responsibility, we're likely to make that a smaller number over time. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure there's much we can do to stop um, the Middle East becoming a vibrant terrorist problem, but I think there is a lot we can do on the other issue you spoke about. Well, I'd just leave a, a little thought here. The children that are in the camps at the moment, let's say one of them is seven now. In 10 years from now, they will be 17. Now, if we've left them in the conditions that they're going to be in with the people they're going to be associating with, it's far more likely that kind of individual is going to be highly motivated to cause a mass casualty attack in Australia than if we bring them home now. So there's a direct interest here, and this is another case where Australia and Australians have an international responsibility, as do other nations. I agree entirely that <clears throat> we should be trying to bring those people home, both because many of them are their innocence because they were brought as children and others because they're a potential threat that we should be seeking to mitigate. I guess my broader issue is I'm not sure there's much we can do to, to stop the Middle East becoming a, um, uh, a haven for terrorists. No, I don't think Australia can, but let's do what's in our national interests and let's take the responsibility that is ours to take. Thank you for the conversation, Michael. Thanks, Marcus. It was good to talk to you about a difficult topic. Continuing our coverage of Syria, Elise and Tom from our cyber team chat about the different social media campaigns that are targeting the narratives surrounding Turkey's offensive against Kurdish forces in the region. G'day Elise, we've been looking at the conflict in Syria and associated with every world event nowadays there seems to be a contest in what I'd call the information space or in social media. So you've been looking into that, what have you found? Um, thanks Tom, yeah so I've been looking mostly at what's been happening on Twitter. Um, as opposed to sort of what is happening also on sort of other social media platforms like Facebook and YouTube. Mm. Um, but I've sort of been focusing on Twitter in the last week or so, and that has been more than enough because there is a lot going on. Yep. Um, because this is such a, a complicated international conflict, you have sort of the Turks, you have supporters of Turkey, um, you have the Kurds, you have supporters of the Kurdish groups in the area, and I think it's important not to conflate the Kurds as a whole with sort of the, the PKK and the YPG who are operating. You have their supporters, but you also have, because this was such a controversial decision by um, President Donald Trump, you also have sort of the whole of the US and, and most of the globe sort of invested in some way or another in this conflict. So there's a lot of actors sort of operating in the, I guess we'd call the narrative space around this conflict, which makes it extremely confusing. 
So can you tell what each of those groups is trying to achieve? To, to some extent you can. Um, so one of the things that has been really apparent from the start is a very strong pro-Turkish push around a series of different narratives and a series of particular hashtags. So early on in the um, in sort of the, the first couple of days after Turkey's incursion into Syria, um, there was uh, the hashtag, we just killed terrorists or Turkey just killed terrorists. Um, with a sort of a, a variety of different spellings and misspellings, which uh, to some extent is quite useful in tracking sort of who are sort of the different campaigns, which one is using like terrorist spelled with two R's versus terrorist misspelled with one R and that kind of thing. So that was sort of a, a really significant feature of the first few days. Um, that hashtag has really dropped off in the last few days. I mean, this is, this is such a new thing. So it's only um, sort of a a week or so old, really. But in, in the last couple of days, uh, the hashtag BabyKillerPKK and BabyKillerYPG have really been um, coming to the fore. And so a lot of the, the narratives that sort of the pro-Turkish side are pushing are um, about sort of the, the PKK and the YPG being terrorists and sort of the SDF being sort of a part of all connected to the PKK and the YPG, very much sort of emphasising that they kill children. And at the same time, there's been sort of this push on the other side, supporting the Turkish armed forces. So a lot of, you know, videos of, of Turkish soldiers cuddling Kurdish babies, uh, lots and lots of that. It's not very subtle. So that they misspell pretty common English words, is, does that mean that they're non-native English speakers trying to sway an English audience? Do you think that? Um, I mean, it's hard to say for certain, but you'd certainly suspect so, um, especially given the the number of the times that that's happened. So there was, like I said, there were multiple spellings of the word terrorist, but that there was also a hashtag Kurds against the SDF, but there was another hashtag that was misspelled as Kurds adjacent the SDF. Um, and that one also got, you know, like thousands and thousands of retweets. So um, it's hard to say for certain, but you'd certainly lean in that direction. And do you think that that kind of campaign actually makes a difference? It's always really hard to measure what the impact of this is. And I think particularly because, because this conflict is still so new, it's really hard to say. I, on the other hand, I wouldn't discount it um, because I, I certainly think that there will be a lot of people who, you know, are not sort of uh, knee deep in, in the weeds of international politics in the way that sort of perhaps listen, listeners of this podcast are. Um, and they will turn to somewhere like Twitter to find information. And if they are sort of searching for these these very common words like Kurds, PKK, YPG, and the first thing they come across is a, a picture of a baby with a shattered skull, like that is going to affect their perceptions. I suppose one of the ways that people get to these topics as well th is through the trending mm. trending hashtags on Twitter. So that doesn't necessarily need anyone to have a particular interest beforehand for it to kind of shape the perception of what is going on. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's been a couple of really interesting things around that, um, about the interaction between sort of what's happening in the online space and the traditional Turkish state media. Um, so, for example, there was a particular hashtag yesterday, uh, hashtag Turkey, Turkey is not alone. It was this really interesting thing where, you know, I'm sure there was some authentic activity on the hashtag, but also a lot of it was automated. There were a lot of bots operating on that hashtag. And then um, TRT World, which is sort of a Turkish state media outlet, put out a video about how the fact this hashtag was trending and then the the same account started retweeting that video so it's sort of a you know the snake eating its own tail kind of a thing yeah wow so at least that's really interesting have you seen any other techniques that have been used 
in this, I guess it's an information conflict. Yeah, so one of the, the interesting things we've seen is um, the use of the opponent's hashtags. Um, so we've seen, for example, um, the pro-Turkish accounts are using a pro-Kurdish hashtag, the hashtag um, Kurdish genocide, for example, to, to promote content which supports the, the Turkish version of events, which is, is quite interesting. And you'd assume that the purpose of that is that so if there are um, Twitter users who are following those pro-Kurdish hashtags, they're going to now be exposed to the, the pro-Turkish narrative, which they might not otherwise have, have seen. And what do you call that? It seems to me to be a bit like hashtag hijacking, but different. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the idea behind hashtag hijacking is where you just hijack just any random popular hashtag and you see marketers do this a lot. So, you know, if you've ever been following a, a trending hashtag on Twitter and you just see that hashtag with like a post selling shoes, um, that I would call hashtag hijacking. Um, whereas I think this, um, it is like a very deliberate strategy of sort of poisoning your opponent's hashtag. And so I think that's something different, but I'm not sure we have a good term for it yet. And where do you think this information battle or conflict is going to go? It's really hard to say. Uh, and I think it obviously will depend very much on sort of how the, the conflict shakes out on the ground and also the, the reaction from the international community. I think it's interesting now that Russia is, is playing a much more active role in this particular um, conflict. And uh, we are already seeing some activity that I, I would suspect is potentially Russian rather than necessarily Turkish. And I think that's really interesting. Um, the involvement of Pakistan is really interesting. Um, and the, the Pakistan is one of the, the few countries who has come out strongly in support of Turkey and its, its actions in Syria. So I think it will be really interesting to see how it develops. I think it's also important to, to note that there is a lot of disinformation coming from both sides. So both the, the pro-Turkish camp and the pro-Kurdish camp are posting fake news and things which are not true. That said, most of the automation seems to be on the pro-Turkish side at this stage. I guess it makes sense in that Turkey is just the bigger, yeah, the bigger and, actor and also, you know, um, resources. Yeah, and also sort of um, political bots and automation have been a, a significant problem in Turkey for many years and that's been, like, very well documented now. Um, and so I would suspect some of the people whose who's day job it is to do this kind of stuff have been diverted away from sort of doing this kind of disinformation and um, sort of information operations on domestic issues to, to this. So I suspect that they're at least a certain number of the people behind this actually do this professionally full-time. So, final question. Is this part of the new normal for on-the-ground conflict? Yes, yes. So the, the reason I started looking at this to begin with is that I sort of saw what was, what was unfolding and I assumed that it would be happening. I would have been shocked if it wasn't, um, and, and it is. And I, I think we should assume sort of going forward that any significant international conflict, particularly one like this one, which involves so many different players, is going to be accompanied with a really um, complex and confusing but um, significant information campaign. Thanks very much, Elise. Thank you, Tom. Finally, Jack recently interviewed Rod Lyon, Senior Fellow at Aspie, to celebrate the release of his Strategist Selections, a collection of his articles on nuclear strategy. In my opinion, Rod is a national treasure and his interview is not to be missed. Rod, nuclear strategy in a changing world covers almost all of the big nuclear issues from Hiroshima to the current day. How have your own views changed and evolved over the decades you've been working in this field? Um, that's a good question. Uh, you stand so close to your own views, you're never quite certain of their own precise evolution. I, I do think a lot of the good thinking about nuclear strategy was done early. 
even now going back to the works of Bernard Brodie and Thomas Schelling, you learn a lot about nuclear strategy from reading the first classical thinkers. But what's interesting is that that very good thinking was done in a very narrow context. That is, it was done in the context of a bipolar world where superpowers were the ones who exercised nuclear force. And we've moved a long way from that world to the one we live in today. And that, that world that has changed quite a lot, we're experiencing, I guess you could call a bit of a nuclear resurgence with uh, proliferation from North Korea, we've got the Iranian issue, the falling apart of the JCPOA, the demise of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, as it's colloquially known. What's behind that? Well, I think two things are behind it. One would be the return of great power competition because the great powers are now engaged in serious modernisation of their arsenals. And if they do that modernisation, if that wave of modernisation flows through, you're going to have a nuclear arsenal that has a longevity of about 70 or 80 years in front of it. I think the second thing that's driving the resurgence is the forces you describe that are flowing through countries like North Korea and Iran. That is what you might call the democratisation of nuclear strategy and nuclear weaponry. In, in the old days, we used to say that to build nuclear weapons, you needed only three things. You needed a source of fissionable material. You needed the technological tool skill that the US had in 1945. And you needed a motive, because without the motive, you wouldn't bother doing the first two. But more countries are now reaching the tool skill of the US in 1945. And if you can get your hands on fissionable material, the motives seem to have become easier to find as the technology has spread. And speaking of North Korea, we've seen most recently their testing of a submarine-launched ballistic missile, not necessarily from a submarine, I think, but potentially a submarine, a submarine platform of some kind. Um, do we just accept that North Korea is now a nuclear state and that's unlikely to change? Oh, this is a good question too, uh, because I think North Korea has been a nuclear-capable state probably since it did the first test. The first nuclear test in 2006 didn't work very well, but slowly they've built the capability first to detonate a bomb the size of the one that went off over Hiroshima, and in its latest test to actually detonate a thermonuclear device. And that knowledge is now in the heads of North Korean scientists. I don't see how you get it out of their heads. Uh, I think you can try and build limits on the North Korean arsenal and you can try and roll the arsenal back. But at what stage do you say a country that had a capability to build a nuclear weapon no longer has that capability? That's a, that's a high threshold to meet. And diplomatically, it seems efforts to achieve that are foundering at best. Is there a way forward that you can see to try and ensure that that capability doesn't expand beyond at least its current levels? Well, it depends on what sort of restraints you want to put on it. If you want to put both quantitative and qualitative restraints on the North Korean arsenal, then you have to start by locking down the, the, both the ban on nuclear testing and the ban on long-range missile testing that exists currently through the moratoria declared by Kim Jong-un. And you've got to translate that into an enforceable restraint. But I think there's a long way to go in, in reining in and rolling back the North Korean arsenal. And shifting to a little bit broader perspective, but staying in the region perhaps, 
Do you think Australia can continue to rely, and other US allies for that matter, can continue to rely on that US extended deterrence factor? This is a difficult question again, because the US extended deterrence relies on both a demonstrated capability to be of assistance to allies when they really need it, plus the resolve in Washington to run nuclear risks on behalf of their allies. And you have to start out by saying that extended nuclear deterrence was built for a different era. It was built for the era of the Cold War, and it was built for allies for whom the US would run risks, but those risks had primarily to be run against Russia, which was the other superpower. And that was an age in which Russia was relatively risk averse. Russia knew well the costs of great power war. Uh, World War I and World War II had taught it that great power wars are costly and bloody and you don't enter into them lightly. But we're not in that world, or not solely in that world anymore. We're in the world in which you're trying to make extended nuclear deterrent supply against countries like North Korea, which are not risk averse. They are risk tolerant countries. Uh, they are willing to press at the threshold for advantage. And these are not countries that have a high stake in the current international order. Uh, they don't have much equity invested in that order. That sort of player, I think, brings just a new calculus to things like US extended nuclear deterrence. I think partly because of that sort of a discussion, we've had it brought up again in Australian public debate that perhaps there should be a consideration of Australia developing its own nuclear deterrent capability. You've written about the barriers to actually achieving that. Do you think it's time to at least consider how Australia should start overcoming those barriers? <laughs> I always love the question, should Australia build nuclear weapons? Because it's usually an invitation to take a length of rope and go and hang yourself in the corner. <laughs> Uh, the, the respondent is asked to identify their own strategic paranoias uh, and their moral weaknesses and foibles. With all that, let me say, the, there is an answer to the question, should Australia develop nuclear weapons? And that, that answer is yes, if it needs to. And if is, a very, is carrying a lot of weight in that answer. Does it need to? Well, it might need to in an Asian strategic environment that was considerably darker than the one we have today. And part of that darker environment would be uh, a loss of confidence in US extended nuclear deterrence. Let me say something else about it. In that sort of environment, you can't suddenly build nuclear weapons. No. Uh, we live in Canberra. And if you live in a Canberran house through the Canberran winter, and you turn on the hot water tap at the other side of your house from where the hot water tank is, it takes a while to get hot water. <laughs> but opting for nuclear weapons is worse than that because you'd be turning on the tap on the opposite side of a house from which no hot water tank had ever been fitted. Okay, <laughs> if we want to have the option of having hot water after a relatively short delay... We've got to build the nuclear skills and build the long lead time items now that will give us the option of going down the nuclear path in the future. 
And do you think the signs for the global nuclear future point in the direction that we should perhaps start that process, at least the examination thereof? I think we should certainly start that process uh, because we that, that's about the stage we reached at the end of the 1960s when the NPT came along. And the NPT forced countries around the world to choose their nuclear identity. And we joined the NPT, and on the whole, we are not a repentant state. Uh, some of the countries that signed the NPT rep repented that signature later. But up till that point, the general rule in Australian defence thinking was that we should work to minimise the lead times we would need uh, in order to be able to proliferate if we needed to. And I think that's a good rule to try and follow in the past and into the future, as we should try and minimise the lead times. Rod, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, don't forget to recommend it to a fellow strategy wonk. As always, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or tweet us at aspie underscore org. We'll be back in two weeks.